Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. It is my pleasure to welcome Lynette Zhang to the show. She is Chief Market Analyst at ITM Trading. She has a fantastic YouTube channel. I sort of met her, I guess, sort of in a proxy fashion or virtually, I guess, sort of on uh, George Gammon's channel. And, uh, you know, he's been on the show several times and I've been on his show as well many times. We are looking forward to diving into some monetary policy topics today, talk about the economy in general, how you can prepare, what you can do, and a whole variety of things there. Lynette, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm great, Jason. I'm very happy to be here today. And you're coming to us from my old hometown, Phoenix, Arizona. I lived there yes. for six years. Yes. Good, good stuff. Well, you know, the purchasing power loss, and I always talk about how inflation is a robber and a thief, and it's mm-hmm. just uh, sort of secretly robbing people of their wealth. You can no longer put money in a coffee can, dig it up 10 years later, and have it be worth the same amount. Unless of it's gold money and silver money. Well, we and we can we can dive into that too and then talk about metals all day long but talk to us a little bit about that that purchasing power decline that we've had over the years especially since the federal reserve was created i think the dollar's lost about 96% of its value somewhere around there and you've got a fascinating chart i'm looking at on your website right now which is just mind blowing and it shows certain time periods with some big dips i'd like to ask you about that a little bit as well so oh, absolutely. Uh, let's dive into that topic. Well, you're, you're looking at one of my absolute favorite charts, and that is probably from the Federal Reserve Educational Department, the FRED. So anybody has access to it. And we've actually lost much officially much closer to 98%. When they created the fiat money system, oh, that one, yes. When they created the fiat money system, they knew that people do not understand inflation. So the benefit for governments is that they get to tax you almost invisibly. Uh, And for corporations, they get to pay you less in actual value. And that's actually what has enabled this big, huge divide in income and wealth inequality. So when you're looking at it and up at at the beginning on the left-hand side of the graph, it's kind of flat. That's when there was a gold and a silver standard because that makes governments have a fiscal responsibility. Where you start to see that big, huge dip, that's when we first went off the gold. Well, we started the fiat standard. Now, fiat is the literal translation is government decree. So fiat is- I I say by authority is the definition, by authority, because the government says so, you have to accept it. And of course we have legal tender 
laws that enforce that. And by the way, exactly. for some who are listening to this only on audio and not watching on video on the YouTube channel, I just want to explain this chart a little bit if I can, Lynette. Um, it goes way back to the 1700s. <laughs> and, and I love it that it's a long history. And mm -hmm. um, e even if you are looking at it on, on video, it's a tad blurry, but I think people can make it out. So, you know, you see some minor variations in the value of the currency. Uh, and then you see the War of 1812 that was, by the way, in 1812, <laughs> for those who but may not know. But we went off the gold standard <laughs> to fund the war. Right. Okay. Got it. So then you see the Civil War and you see a huge decline. And I remember I actually have some of these coins in my coin collection, these protest coins that were right around the Civil War because people were so angry about the loss of value in the currency that they started yes. minting their own coins, right? And this is an interesting part of, you know, uh, monetary history that people don't talk much about anymore because it's a while back. But then we come up to the creation of of the Federal Reserve just over a hundred years ago. That was, I believe, the U.S.'s third central bank uh, experiment. Okay, and I, I'd still say it's an experiment. That and then, is. you know, we see this big, massive decline, and it is just falling off a cliff. You know, we talk, we see 1933 where they had the gold confiscation. They confiscated gold at like $21 an ounce and then instantly revalued it at like $33 or $35, I think, something like that. 35. Um, and mm -hmm. Yeah, 35. And wow, Lynette, I mean, this is staggering. People yes. don't realize this. And one of the things that hides it is technology because technology is a deflationary force. I'm sure we'd agree on that. And yep. so it kind of does mask and hide some of the impacts of this bad fiscal and monetary policy that we've had to endure. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Sure, because a lot of it is, it's called nominal confusion. And this is, they knew two key things. They knew a lot of things when they put this system in place. But they knew that people do not understand inflation and they marry the legal money of the state because inflation causes nominal confusion. So if you had a $20 bill 20 years ago and you have a $20 bill today, nominally they are identical. So you think you have a $20 bill. But in terms of purchasing power, what you could buy with that 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, a year ago. And what you can buy with it is very, very different. I like to tell the story was my father was a developer and this would have been in the early 70s. I don't know why this stuck with me, but he had this young couple at his house and he worked, the, the guy worked for IBM. And I remember my mother banging her fist on the table and saying, he's a comer, he's a comer. He makes $12,000 a year. Yeah. Well, back then the average wage was about 9,500. And a family of four, needed one wage earner. And I'm not saying right. they were rolling in it, but they were quite comfortable. So right. if somebody was making $12,000 a year, they were doing very, very well. And my father sure. built very nice homes. Well, right. today, well, wow, look at what they just did with the, the $1,200 stimulus checks. If you make $75,000 a year or less, you got $12,000, you got a $1,200 stimulus check or 150. So that alone 
you know, I think the average wage now is something like 55 or 58,000. So when you stop and think about it, you know, normal person would go, well, yeah, I'd much rather have 58,000 or 75,000 than I would 9,500. But the difference is in that graph that you showed. It's your ability to purchase. And I would also like to really point out that it's because of what you just saw in the graph and the tool, which were which are interest rates, that's the tool that the central banks have to regulate the rate and speed of inflation. So when they're anchored at zero, where do you go? So that's why I'm sitting here and, and really we're already we've already entered it and it should be pretty clear to everybody. Life as we knew it is not the same and it will never be the same. We are 100% inside of a complete reset, social, economic, and financial. Okay, so what does a reset mean from the financial perspective? You know, people have talked, Lynette, about a debt jubilee. And, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't know why anybody would go for that. Uh, you know, I mean, I can, I can see why people, I can see why people that have a lot of debt would like it, but I can't see why lenders would ever agree to that kind of deal or, I don't know, you know, it just seems like a weird idea to me. I've never understood that too much, but I've done some shows on it. So what does this reset mean? What does it look like? And then of course, let's talk about what we can do. Well, you know, what a reset does, all right, if you have no tools left, the Fed is out of tools. All they can do is create more money and they can go to negative interest rates and that's what it's looking like. So just recently, they, re, they did do a, an in, kind of an invisible reset where they changed how they were targeting inflation and the Federal Reserve said, we're going to allow inflation to, rate, to run hotter, in other words, higher, even though they haven't officially been able to hit that 2% target, though your pocketbook would probably tell you different if you paid attention to food and education and insurance and all of the things that we need on a day-to-day basis. So what they need to do is they need to take us into a new system because the old system is used up, and that's the reset. The way that they've done it, they've already started to come out with it. Have you talked with any of your guests about the Fed now? What do you mean? Okay. The, the Federal Fed Reserve. Is that a program or something? That is a program that oh, okay. the Fed just announced oh. a few weeks ago. And they also announced the, the, uh, do, the digital dollar. Right. So the yeah, Fed now. The I old talked system. a lot about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, this, leads, this all leads into that. Because the, uh, the Fed now is about you as an individual having an account directly tied to the Federal Reserve. So mm-hmm. when they issue UBI, Universal Basic Income, which I think is going to be here like within months, then they will make a direct deposit. They'll just push a button and there'll be all of this money that's set up in your account. And they're going to do that every week or every month. I don't know how what the frequency is going to be, but this is a consumer-driven economy. They have to get the consumer to consume. In the current system, when the Fed makes a policy, it takes about 18 months to work through the system. They use the banks 
to distribute that policy. And it takes about 18 months for them to know if the policy is working or not. But with these Fed accounts, that is boom, an instant thing. So they push a button and now you have money in there. If you are not spending that money quickly enough, that money will start to evaporate, which will most likely inspire you to go out and spend it. And really, it's already evaporating through basic inflation. But this oh, would be a more specific thing. And what this is like, think of it this way, folks. This is like a gift card that loses its value over time or it completely expires. But right. interestingly, you know, that sounds terrible from an individual perspective. But for the collective, <laughs> it's kind of good in a way because they could force the velocity of money. Right. Exactly and, the point. You know, you, you, yeah, yeah. And so that forces inflation because yes. when there's more velocity, that's an inflationary pressure, meaning that money moves faster through the system. The more it's traded, it creates inflationary pressure in the system. And that's why even when you have a lot of money printing or money creation is really the more proper way to say it, or credit creation too. You can have like minimal or non-existent inflation because uh, if people aren't spending or there's very little velocity, you know, it just doesn't cause that inflationary pressure very much as, as it should. But, you know, it, it reminds me of George Bush's idiotic remark post 9-11 where he said, go shopping, go out and spend money, you know? And yes, that is true. You know, that does stimulate the economy. I get it. But the basis of uh, wealth in any society or any individual is capital formation. You've got yes. to save in order to invest. And, in, in, you know, if you're a business, increase your production capacity. Or if you're an individual, increase your investment capacity or a family uh, so, or a nation. Same exactly thing, right. individual, nation, family, whatever, business, all, all of those categories. So, and the thing that scares me the most, Lynette, is the idea of that that could be married someday to some sort of social scoring system like they have oh. in China, where they could, oh gosh, they could yes. make your money evaporate from your phone. If they, if they think you're a bad kid, you know, maybe you're posting things critical of the government or the Fed on social media, your money could just evaporate. You know, they'd, oh. they'd of course do it under the guise of our safety. And, and, you know, at first they would apply it to true criminals, but then the definition of what is a crime would keep changing, changing. And, you know, making exactly. it, yeah, right. Tell us we, what We are definitely are. in a surveillance economy. And I did a piece oh, on this yeah. maybe a year ago and took a look at, and somebody just asked me this question the other day. Well, if we have these direct accounts, with the Federal Reserve, the individual does, then what's the role of the bank? Well, here's the thing. The banks are sitting in the middle. So the Fed has, or any central bank anywhere you are in the world, they can just push a button and create that money as you indicated, but they don't have the relationship with the clients, right? That's what the bank has. Now the technology, has, that's big data. They have the data on your habits. Right. And what we're seeing is a merger of the three. And when that happens, you're absolutely right. We're already living in the surveillance economy. Go through any, I was driving in uh, Paradise Valley yesterday and I noticed cameras in the cactus. 
right? Unbelievable. I, I know. I know. We were like, is that, I actually did a U-turn because I couldn't believe what I saw. You couldn't believe and, it. And oh, there it was. Very obvious. Once you really the knew that that's can. what you were looking for. Unbelievable. Right. You know, it's so scary. This is why I call it COVID-1984, because COVID has given the government, governments around the world, and it's all starting with China, of course, great the most. Excuse. It's a great excuse. It's giving them great cover to do contact tracing. You know, first, it's going to be phones and cameras. Then it's going to be Apple watches. And then it's going to be it's going to be chips implanted in our I, body. And that's, I you was know, just we're going to spend say... by, the, the chip will be in your wrist, and you're going to just put it near the card, re- the chip reader, and that's how you're going to pay for things. And uh, yeah. well, you know, I, I did, uh, I did a research piece a little while ago, a few months ago, where I went to the lab where, where the COVID was, uh, some said it was released from. And actually, if you read the, the papers that are in there, you can actually see that they've known about this for a long time that they admit to engineering and working on creating this super bug. They have beautiful flow charts that shows how it transmits from animals, the bats, to humans. And they also knew that it was a matter of time. And what was interesting to me, I mean, all of that was interesting to me, but it was also interesting that at the same time that they were working on creating this superbug, they were not working on creating a cure for the superbug. So that's number one. Number two, I just found this the other day. I think this is a, this is a new development where they are putting, I can't remember the name of the company. It's not in front of me, but I can send you the link to it. Putting a chip in a vaccine. And the government of Bangladesh is where they are rolling this piece out. Now, they're also, this company is that does that chip into the vaccine, which of course is, oh, Gavi. That's right. Actually, this is bigger than, bigger than just a company that's doing this because this is through, don't hold me to this. I don't have it in front of me but something like the World Economic Forum, which their new, their new symposium coming up is called the, the Great Reset. But they're working with Gavi, who was founded by, let's see, oh, it was ID2020. I'm sorry, I'm just, I, I'm going through so much data, sometimes it takes me a minute if I'm thinking about it. But the name of the, comp- of the entity is ID2020. It was created in 2016. The Rockefeller uh, Foundation was funded them initially, as well as Bill and Melinda Gates. Gavi is a vaccine alliance that was created by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they are working with the city uh, or the country of Bangladesh, the government of Bangladesh, to insert these chips through a vaccine. A vaccine, yeah, I know, I know about that. Now, yeah, it's okay. uh, it's it's pretty scary stuff for sure. And I wouldn't Very trust scary. Bill and Melinda Gates as far as I could throw them. I mean, think about it. Bill Gates, his his career started as a 
he started as a, a ripoff artist. He, he basically ripped off, uh, you know, what made him so rich in the beginning, but no one talks about that anymore, you know, and he's the perfect sort of fatherly figure, you know, wearing a sweater, you know, he's the perfect guy to pull this off, right? Um, but hey, I want to get back to the thing on the banks for a minute. And the, yes. let me show you this chart on my screen here for a second, okay. because I thought this was interesting, if not kind of hopeful. You said with a, a Fed coin, can you see this chart uh, about Square? I can see it. So this is kind of hopeful. It shows that Square, the payment processing platform, and we've all seen these alternatives, you know, PayPal, Venmo, Square, Stripe. Right. Uh, and they're all a little different. I don't mean those are all exactly the same thing, of course. They are, they are different. But the concept being the cashless movement. Oh, yeah. And this doesn't require a cryptocurrency. And it's, you know, it's a group of private companies. But what's interesting about this is that Square's valuation is rivaling some big giant banks now. Look at this, for example. At its current valuation, it puts the company closer to the ranks of large U.S. banks Goldman Sachs, that's on purpose, okay, <laughs> Goldman <laughs> yeah. Sachs with a current valuation of $74 billion is just $20 billion ahead of Square. I mean, look at Goldman Sachs has been around for a long, long time, right? Larger companies like J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America are still far ahead, but could be within distance if Square continues to capitalize on the new digital payment environment. And this same concept applies to other companies. Square is just the example here. But, but what you know, I'd also like to point I mean, out... Do we really need a digital currency, you know? Well, we don't need a digital currency. Right. The central bankers need a digital currency and they need to get rid of cash because what gold did to them is it put restrictions around how quickly they could rob us through inflation. Now, the right. dollar is actually a debt instrument that pays no interest. So they have to get rid, they have to get rid of this piece of paper. Because as long as this piece of paper is out there, they can't go, well, what's a dollar? It's 1.00, right? In a digital currency, there are no limitations on how far past that, that uh, point that they can go. And so keep, but now they would be attacking your principal, not just your purchasing power. However, having said all of that, Square and any of those other fintech companies like that they may look neat and clean, but if you were to look underneath, I think what you see is Goldman Sachs or Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or all those guys have a big chunk of that. So they're not really as removed as it would be nice if they were, but the central banks, there's nothing left. There's no valuation left. The only thing that is left is our confidence Remember, it goes back to when they started this whole scam. What they knew is that people marry the legal money of the state. Hence, we've got the U.S. dollar here and we've got a digital dollar, right? If they change the name, people would know. And I, I think I might be older than you. I remember all of the chaos and the craziness that was happening back in the 60s and the 70s with the Vietnam War, women's lib, civil rights, the oil embargo. I mean, there was a high inflation, the stock market. 
I remember all of that. But what I didn't know then as a teenager, I knew that there was a lot of change in the air. I could feel it. I even remember saying to myself, don't ask me why a 17-year-old girl would think about this. But I remember saying to myself, Social Security isn't going to be there for me by the time I get there. And frankly, you know, here we are. But I had a $20 bill in my wallet in June of 1971. I had maybe it was even a brand new $20 bill in my wallet in September of 1971. They looked almost identical. So I didn't know anything had changed. And you listen to that Nixon speech and he says, oh, and he said temporary, temporary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not only is it temporary, but you don't have to worry about inflation because if you buy American goods, your dollar is going to buy exactly the same amount. And as you pointed out in that first graph, lies, lies, lies. Yeah. But but I want to just go back uh, and talk a little bit more about this covid thing. Because there are so many coincidences that I don't think it's a coincidence. Right. They, the, 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 the coincidences are amazing. It's the handiest thing for government ever. Uh, I mean, this is, if, you, if you're you, a government control freak, this is your dream come true. What's going you know, on right now? Yeah. It, it, if you just start to read all of the IMF, the BIS, and the federal government, and the state, if you start reading those documents, you don't have to think about conspiracy theory. It's actually all out there in open right. language. It's just that nobody goes and reads there. But remember, have you talked much about the LIBOR, the, the created benchmark that created it in the 80s, and then it no, failed? No, not a lot. We talked about that we covered... We covered the LIBOR scandal back then, but we haven't talked much about LIBOR. Tell us more. Let me tell you. Well, okay. In 2012, it came to light that this was a stated rate. So banks would get together and say, oh, this is what I think the interest rate should be. This is, this is. So shocker that it's manipulated. It's not even a market rate. But once the public knew about it, they had to get rid of it. You covered it back then. Well, the date that it goes away is December 31st, 2021. So since that period of time, you have about five or six central banks that have attempted to create a new benchmark, and they've created it in this country as the SOFR. But then they attempted to create a market for this new benchmark. And guess what? They couldn't get they couldn't get cooperation. They could not create that market. Now, in this recent turmoil, especially when they came out with the Main Street lending program or all these other lending programs, frankly, they had the opportunity to really develop that market. Look at the trillions that they've created. So they could have, in my opinion, but apparently I'm wrong, they could have created that market and forced it. Instead, they went back to the LIBOR knowing full well that it's going away in in how many months do we have left? 15 months, 16 months. So that was that that is failing. And the problem is, is you have about 
nominal, again, there's that term nominal. Whenever you hear that term nominal, you have to know that the truth is being hidden. In, the in, definition in any way. of nominal means in name. Just the only. number. That's the definition of nominal. Yeah. Right. So we have about six trillion in nominal contracts that are tied to LIBOR that must be reset, restructured is the way they, the term they used, and tied to this new benchmark, which nobody's been able to really create that market for. And it was a big experiment anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, the timing of all of this, the fact that they were instrumental in helping create this super bug. And then it magically came out and the way that it impacts people. There's a, there's a lot of good questions for sure. And, you know, we may never know, or at least not know for a long time. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go Go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.